Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast. I'm also the Managing Director of B-Squared, a company who supports schools to show small steps of progress. Each week on the podcast, we'll be talking about a topic within the world of special educational needs, something to help us learn and support children with SEND. You could be a parent or relative, teacher, teaching assistant, SENCO, senior leader, advisor, or someone else who works with children with SEN. There is so much to do, so much to learn, and a load of stuff we don't have time for. The SENCAST is here to help you broaden your knowledge around a range of topics within the world of special needs. In this episode, our guest, Ang Harrod-Welsh, has joined me to talk about communication-friendly environments and the changes schools can make to help support communication. This is about providing opportunities to communicate, as well as making it easy, effective, and enjoyable. Ang Harrod has worked with a number of organizations, including Nason and ourselves at B-Squared, and she also speaks at various events. Before we get started, do you know what we do here at B-Squared? Have you even heard of B-Squared? B-Squared was started around 25 years ago by my mum. She was always struggling to show progress for people with special needs, so created something that would keep her going until someone else made something she could buy. That never happened, so she started selling what she created. 20 years ago, my dad decided we worked much better as a piece of software and created Connecting Steps, our assessment software. We are currently on version 4 and we have somewhere around 4,000 schools who have purchased Connecting Steps for showing progress for their pupils with special needs. Over the last 25 years, we've been keeping up with the government changes and creating new frameworks based on government guidance. So if you still haven't found your replacement to P-levels, have a look at our website to see what we have done. We have also started to create frameworks for other areas. Early this year, we launched our communication interaction framework to help schools work closer with their speech and language therapists. The framework supports pupils who communicate vocally or using AAC. You can find out more by visiting the B-Squared website. I'll put a link in the show notes to take you to the correct page. And if you're interested in what B-Squared do in our frameworks, I'll also put a link in the show notes to book a free online meeting with myself where I can show you what we do and how this can support your school. Now on with the podcast. Welcome to Sharon Harrod. Hi, nice to be here. A communication-friendly environment is something that supports all pupils, but especially for pupils struggling with speech, language, and communication needs. It's not always big changes, but by making these changes, you are removing some of the barriers that prevent or limit children's development. When we're talking about a communication-friendly environment, it isn't just what is in the classroom. It is how we structure the day and the opportunities we give children. But where is the best place for schools to start? Okay, well, um, I think it's it's often easiest for people to think about their physical environments because it's what they can see. One of the big things that we need people to do if we're going to provide great communication environments for children is to be reflective about the ways they talk and the things they do. So it's very easy for adults to just do the things we always do because it's the way we've always done it. And so one of the big things we can do is stop and look at our day and think about it from a communication perspective and whether providing all the opportunities we might be to promote children's communication and promote the communication of those children who might be finding the developmental process of that a little bit difficult. So that's that's things about basically do we think communication when we're planning for our children are we thinking all the time about what vocabulary we're targeting are we being explicit to the children about how we learn language that's really important you know are we teaching them how to learn vocabulary to remember things um, how to ask when they don't understand those are all really important skills but we don't always explicitly teach them and our children with SRCN really need us to be explicit about the way that we are embedding language in our uh, in our lessons and giving them strategies to work with the language that we're using so thinking back to my childhood I've obviously got a perfect memory and remember everything <laughs> I've got no idea of anyone ever teach me those sorts of skills obviously we didn't do a lesson on how to ask questions so how do you help or teach someone to be able to ask questions? Do you just confuse them so they have to ask questions? <laughs> <laughs> the thing is with a lot of our children uh, with SRCN, they haven't picked up the normal language skills through just being exposed to language. So you picked up the skill of asking and answering questions by being exposed to that. But we know that for whatever reason, our children with SRCN aren't picking up those skills naturally from just the normal amount of language exposure. So it's about being explicit about about talking about language, that sort of meta language, you know, language about language. So teaching children the words they need, you know, just even teaching them what I'm asking you right now is a question because all that information is implied. 
teaching them about vocabulary and how they can access that, for example. So there's lots of uh, really great universal level strategies you can use around teaching children vocabulary. For example, like the Word Aware program might be something that people have heard of where you can embed the concept of children being responsible for their own vocabulary learning in the lesson. Um, and across your school day, because then you're basically giving children strategies for things to do when they don't know what to do. And so many, you know, it's a bit like study skills. We don't really teach children how to study often and we don't teach children how to approach language situations. Actually, if we make those skills explicit, those are the skills that children can carry into every situation they ever encounter. Whereas, you know, if we just we we might teach them a word in a lesson and that's fine. But a bit like teach a man to fish and you've, uh, you know, he can feed himself for a lifetime. It's the same kind of principle. So if you teach children about language and be explicit with them, you are finding language difficult for some of our children with SLCN, you know, and these are the things, these are the skills you need to learn around language to help yourself so that we can produce independent learners who can cope with all their strengths and weaknesses as they go through school. So I suppose it's also not only questioning, it's also sharing as well. It's another sort of area you're, you need to enable someone to do. So question something you've done or ask a question about something that's happened, but also being able to share your own experiences or share things that you've done which may relate. Absolutely. So we need to think about putting structures in place in our day to give children sort of bridges into being able to do some of these things. So things like the way you use visual supports to maybe give children a some sentence starters, for example, if you're doing a news activity in school, that's one of the things that's really classically challenging for children with SLCN is that time in the day when you share news of what you did over the weekend, because that's narrative and narrative is really difficult. It's difficult for a lot of children for lots of reasons. So, you know, for example, that's when you might put in place some visuals or sentence starters so that children have a structure to base their talking around and teach them that quite explicitly instead of letting them struggle. Because a lot of our children have got lots to say, but they don't necessarily have all the the skills to get it out there. So it's our responsibility as adults to provide those opportunities. Um, I think so often we're waiting for children to catch up with us, but we need to go down to where they are. And we need that needs to be embedded in all our planning, in our learning environments, not an add-on, which I think is what it's often thought of as. Yeah, so I think back to uh, again time at school is often teaching was a one-way thing Mm. teachers told you this is what you're going to do blah 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 talk for a while turn to this page in your textbook or go do this or write about this and there was often very little chance for you to get your make sure you understood what was being asked so there was no opportunity for communication in those sort of environments So. That's a big change. Now, that was a secondary school level stuff I'm thinking back to. But it was that you were told, blah, 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 load of information, almost get on with it. Yeah, completely. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that speaking and listening is so embedded in our curriculums now shows that we do recognise that those are important skills for children to take forward into their lives. Yeah. But if we don't plan for those, we can't assume they're going to be learned incidentally through what we're teaching we need to think hard about how we provide opportunities for children and that's for all children not just children with SLCN you know we need to make sure that we are creating opportunities for lots of different types of talking to be included in our uh, classroom activities and to differentiate how that how we do that in terms of giving children at all different sorts of language levels the opportunity to contribute so for example something I teach a lot is how uh, teaching children what to do when they don't understand something and actually that starts with recognizing when you haven't understood something yeah and if you're if you're a child who has got SLCN you might be pretty used to not understanding quite what's going on so it's never really occurred to you need to do something about it so we need to be teaching children that it's okay to say when they've not understood and here are some strategies that you can use to help because we're all going to be in a place in our lives at some point or other where we haven't understood what we've been asked to do So that's a really important life skill, you know, and when we don't plan for that stuff, what we're teaching children is to sit there and stay confused and hope something comes along to help you. And that's not really preparing our children's language skills for the future. No, no. I I know lots of times I go on courses and I know I've not understood something and I've asked questions because I think it's a it starts with confidence. So as well as teaching them the skills, you're teaching them the confidence to ask the questions. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you talk about talking, 
you talk about the skills they might want to develop in your classroom, you're giving everybody permission to acknowledge that something's difficult. Even for children who are quite able communicators, certain things like that are going to be difficult. So, you know, when we are more explicit about talking about the kind of talking we're doing and what we might need our talking for, then we are we're giving children those life skills. So there's many an adult who will sit there not having a clue what's going on too in that environment because they don't have the confidence exactly as you say. So it's important that teachers can model what that looks like in their teaching environments but it kind of needs to be at the heart of our planning yeah right from day one actually and then you'll see children taking responsibility for their learning uh, which is what we want isn't it we want independent learners and if we don't teach them the skills to help themselves um, and embed that in the way that we use our language opportunities in the classroom then uh, we can't be surprised later when they become very reliant on TAs and teachers to pick up on their mistakes for them I suppose um, there's been a lot of change at child-led child-led learning so you said putting children in charge of their vocabulary all that sort of stuff so if you're introducing a topic for this term is Mm. actually going so we're going to be doing the romans next term what do you all know about the romans yes and you're, you're you're encouraging communication you're finding out and you're finding where that where they are you can also find out within that what they want to learn so you're constantly finding out and you're having a conversation around it Yes, because then the children are sharing what they're sharing, what they want, what they know about, or it's, it gives that confidence that each time they know this is going to happen next time. Absolutely, yeah, that's a really good point. So if we if we always approach those things in the same way and show children they're going to have those opportunities, then those children who maybe they're not going to contribute very much this time, they'll understand what the format that looks like next time a topic's introduced, and they might have a go next time. So yeah, absolutely. So I think what you're saying is a lot of the things we're talking about are quite naturally embedded into early years environments and we have to think much more carefully about maintaining those things that we know are good for children's communication as they go up through school particularly as you get to secondary exactly as you say it becomes a little bit more one way doesn't it Um, necessarily to an extent but actually we need to be thinking carefully about how we're nurturing those communication skills all the way through from early years all the way through to secondary yeah I think it is um it is really important. I think there's a lot of changes where all, all the benefits of something, not always apparent, so that child-led thing mm-hmm. and that consistency is you might not realise why you need to do that because yes. you're confident and you're happy with things and stuff. But um, my nephew, he's in year 10 now, but he became a school refuser in year 8. And but in his time in secondary school, it would take him about a month to six weeks to talk to a teacher mm. because he wanted to see how that teacher would react when others talk to them. So if you've got that child who's got that anxiety and unsure, if they see you having that conversation with other children this time, and then that conversation, they already know roughly what this is going to be like, they know roughly what's going to happen, how that teacher may respond. Yes. So keeping that conversation and keeping it the same, that child's confidence level each time will increase, which will then enable them to join in that conversation. Might not be the first time, mm-hmm. might not be the fourth time, but maybe the fifth, sixth, or seventh, they might feel confident enough to join in that conversation. Yeah, you, you're so right. And I think consistency is like the holy grail of speech and language therapy. It's always really, really hard to achieve but the more consistent we can be the more we you know we're making our expectations clear to children and not changing the game on them all the time <laughs> and people are often worried about being explicit about the things that children find difficult but you know and we shy away from that so for example it was selective meters and people don't like talking about the fact that children are not talking because they're worried about drawing attention to that and making the child more anxious but actually it's important that we acknowledge the things that a child's good at but also the things that a child's finding difficult about talking um, and that is true of all the children in your environment you know talking explicitly about the skills that they are practicing and the things they can do if they're finding them hard if you don't talk about something it means you shouldn't and therefore it might be bad absolutely so yeah. if you're not talking about someone's selective mutism it's because it shouldn't be talked about because it's a bad thing yes absolutely whereas if you are talking about it you're acknowledging it you're accepting it you're not dismissing it you're accepting it and there's then there's less fear about it yeah and then once you have that joint understanding you can introduce strategies that people can use and the same you know there's no shame in not understanding what's been said to you we all have that happen to us but if we don't make those things explicit to our children just the way we talk about things and giving them explicit strategies these are things you can do when you don't understand 
then how are they to know that? And a lot of children do pick that stuff up sort of through the ether, but a lot of children don't. And we don't know. And the thing is, when we provide good communication environments, it makes our job of assessing easier too, because then children can show what they actually know. We're not going to them and sort of prodding them and prompting them to show what they know. If they can be successful communicators because of the way we've taught them and the way we've thought about how we teach them about language, then they're going to show spontaneously what they know. And they'll make our jobs easier as people who are trying to get a baseline on their knowledge too. So what's good for children uh, in terms of communication learning is good for teachers in terms of, you know, tapping into their assessment too. Yes. Finding out where you are, where you're going, all that sort of stuff. So we've talked about sort of things you can do in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So opportunities for conversation, all that sort of stuff. What can you do around the school? So is it something which just is in the classroom? What can you do at break time? What can you do at lunchtime? What can you do at other times? Yeah, no, it's a really good point. So, no, you know, in an ideal world, your whole school is going to be a communication friendly environment because I think it can be easy to sort of when we get into assessment mode and um, monitoring mode, it can be easy to think about it as something that's bound to a classroom. But actually, you know, we're preparing children for their whole lives and they're never going to be communicating in just one environment. So there's loads of things you can do, actually. I mean, one big thing you can do is think about your environment in terms of the way children move around. Are there spaces that children can gather that are quiet where they can talk, for example? Think about how we use seating and furniture to encourage children to sit and talk to each other. Because spaces are a real premium in a lot of schools and a lot of those small spaces being squeezed out. We were talking about corridors earlier, your average school corridors, either they're huge and echoey or they're really narrow and they channel the children down there. So, you know, we, we can't always mitigate all the problems with our, our physical buildings. But if we're thoughtful about how we use our spaces in our school, we can create small spaces where children, especially our less confident children, you know, they might not have language problems per se, but our less confident children might need quieter spaces that are less intimidating to talk in. Yeah. It's also about the way we use visual support around the school. And the, and the way we train all our staff in school. So, you know, uh, we all know there's not nearly enough training for teachers in SLCN, but actually your child interacts with loads of children in school, dinner ladies and the front office and the person who is the lollipop lady outside school. And actually to be a really successful communication environment, then we want all those people to have a basic understanding of the different ways children communicate and how they could use basic strategies to encourage that communication. So it's quite a widespread thing, really. So we were talking earlier and you gave the example of a school which had some visual supports for uh, saying what you'd come to the head teacher's office for. Yep. Absolutely brilliant. And it's about thinking about, again, it's that's about planning in our opportunities. So, you know, what times in a school day does a child communicate with people who are not teachers? You know, can we give our dinner ladies things that they could carry on their apron so that children could come and point to something to tell them what they, they need, for example, you know, there are loads of ways you can get imaginative, thinking about actually what do children need to do to function with their yep. communication and think about it from the child's perspective and not just what we need to see them doing in the classroom. I suppose there's little things. So I think my daughter's school, primary school, had like, it was a bus stop sign. And I can't remember what it was, what was on it, but it was something like, I've got no one to play with zone. Yes. And so it's kind of, if you've got nothing, you can go over here and... Therefore, that then becomes a non-verbal communication skill. You're just standing in an area and hopefully other children will see that and go and play. Yes. The dinner lady might. So there's certain things you can do is just if children have got nothing to do and they've got no one to play with, is there a way that without them walking up to someone saying it, they can go to just go, I've got no one to play with? Yes. Yeah, really. Yeah, really good example. So, you know, friendship benches and things like that where children can go and a lot of children really struggle with the language around social interactions because it's so open-ended and you need such a lot of flexibility in your language skills to be, a, you know, the classroom language to an extent is predictable. We understand what that looks like when we're being taught and responding to things, but actually social language is really open-ended. So there's often a lot of work to do in supporting children to be successful communicators with their peers and we need to plan for that because a lot of children are great at communicating with adults. They're good at using the things we've put in place for them, but they don't necessarily carry them over into 
open-ended social situations and just the equipment you provide for example so you know a child who maybe can't cope with a big group in the playground but if you provide them with some equipment for you know the old-fashioned structured playground games we all used to play um, where the language is kind of preset they can be successful without tons of language you know just providing a little bit of extra equipment in your playground environment to give language opportunities for children who can't cope with the open-ended nature of the playground can be that's exactly the kind of thing and it needn't be expensive you're talking about a few hoops or something or a football yeah or just you know teaching them what's the time mr wolf for or whatever but that's really valuable opportunity for children to practice a different type of communication skill as it is is when when if someone's just sitting on this bench or in this area no one to play with and someone else walks up at that time all they've got is that conversation Mm. if somebody's not good at conversations Yes. That is going to make that really awkward and it's going to just ruin their confidence. But if you, that child can come and say, let's go play, what's the time, Mr. Wolf, let's go do hopscotch. Yes. The actual conversation is then about the game, which they both know the rules of. It's mm-hmm. already given, you said it's given that structured language about the game. Mm-hmm. And then they're not really having a conversation. That's not the main part of it. The main part is playing the game and the conversation might happen as they go on and the conversation might be based around what they're doing or it might meander off into something else yes that starting that ability to start a conversation without the direct pressure of it's all about me absolutely because a lot of children you'll often see your children with their sosien you know they might initiate something in a social situation and you see them drift away because they don't have the skills to maintain an interaction or very sadly you know you, you see them standing alone in the playground so you know we have to for a little bit of planning about creating a good environment, you could make a significant difference to that child's social communication skills. Actually, those are often neglected times in a child's day. Yeah. Those social times. Lunch times are a classic example too. <laughs> so I know um, you can do things like lunchtime clubs. Mm-hmm. And it's great because like Lego therapy. Yes. A lot of the time with Lego therapy, it's generally the Lego is a distraction. Yeah. Lego is something to focus on and then hopefully the conversation type stuff will happen. Yes. But again, it's it's moving the conversation away from between the two people to distract them with something, get them to focusing on that, and then ask some questions about what they're building, what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Also, you share about things, and then that will just build their confidence up. Because they're less thinking. There's lots of things around stuff like Lego therapy and various other things are just really good for that confidence building and taken away some of that anxiety yeah absolutely it's all about providing a structure around which communication can happen really and you know adding in additional resources that you know chime with the child's interests can do absolute wonders you know and a lot of times in school actually we do a lot of sort of talking and listening but actually how often do we really have opportunities for conversation with the children you know outside the classroom and a lot of our children that's what they need you know I can I can sit with them in the therapy session and practice I don't know one particular grammatical form or something but actually they need to see that embedded in a conversation and a lot we're all busy and we don't have time for that and we need to make time and even something as simple as making sure there's somebody sat eating their lunch with the children on a rotor so that they can chat yes. whilst they eat because a lot of children don't have that opportunity at home so you know yeah. just Small changes like that, can you'd be amazed at the impact they can make for children. And just mentioning that, sitting down having lunch, there's, um, I've seen and heard of a few schools who've done this. I think the main aim is pupil premium, but it can apply to anyone. If you've got children who don't always communicate or they often drift off or drift to the back, of the, what they did is, is they assigned children to different members of staff. Mm-hmm. So I might have Fred, Claire and Joe or something and you might have, but my job is every day to find those children and have a little conversation with them. Mm. Walking down the corridor, asking them how you are. The idea is three or four times a day, I will have a short conversation with them. And then over time, they'll know that I'm going to have a good one and it will build their confidence up because someone's interested in them. Mm -hmm. It's that opportunity to have a conversation. And because it's that same person regularly, it's going to build their confidence up and they might then want to share things as well. Yes, absolutely. And it might not be children in my class. Yes. Because sometimes that child might really like or have a connection or seem to be able to talk to one of the dinner ladies. 
Yeah. So you can just, doesn't have to be that person's teacher. It could be anyone, someone who's had a connection with that child could have been a teacher from three years ago. But if it builds that child's confidence, it's going to be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need to, you know, there's a lot of pressure on adults in schools. And I think we almost need to give people permission to have those opportunities. I know I've been doing quite a lot of training of earlier settings recently. We talk a lot about interaction styles with children that are useful to promote communication. And one of the big things that comes back and it never stops surprising me is that what people take from it is, yes, the technical information about, you know, modelling and extending and that kind of thing. But actually what we spend a lot of time talking about is they feel they've been given permission to spend time talking to the children because there's so much structure around inspection now and, you know, ticking boxes, that stuff gets squeezed out and you can feel like you're not doing anything. Yeah. And quite a few managers on the course were saying, actually, if I walked into a room and I could see a practitioner who was talking to a child and they weren't really like doing anything, you know, they were just listening to the child and watching what they're interested in. I might think that that practitioner's not doing anything. And I would I would feel negatively about that practitioner. And actually, we need to we need to value those little moments of time because actually those are the things the child's going to remember too right you know the quality of our relationships are what so there's a somebody called dr karen treisman and she talks a lot about attachment but she has a great quote that i love it's every interaction is an intervention oh i like that one i absolutely love that because really you know what what's communication for it's so it's about building the stuff of relationships with people and uh, when we get a bit too focused sometimes on what talk goes on in the classroom we forget that actually these children need these communication skills for their lives or beyond our education environments so you know those things are so important and we need as adults it's our job to make sure we keep prioritizing them definitely so we've talked a lot about what uh, the different sort of um people in the school can do we've talked about factoring in in time and changing things you can do but what about the actual physical school so we talked about you can have wide corridors and narrow corridors, but what other things help children communicate? Yeah, so noise is a big one. Your average school, you know, is not built with listening in mind. <laughs> so um, that can be very difficult. You know, your big echoey spaces, for example. So simple things like maybe bringing in a bit more soft furnishings. I know there's, you know, in, in a COVID era, we might not want to bring in these things, but, you know, those big empty classrooms that are so easy to clean may not be so great for children's listening and attention skills, particularly if you've got children with additional needs who are very distracted by the sort of sensory qualities of that. So thinking about thinking about that but also thinking about where do we do activities in our spaces so you know if you are trying to do an activity that for the children requires close concentration and listening then probably we don't need somebody setting up the next activity right next to them because that's incredibly distracting (laughs) so again going back to the training I was doing recently you know people were amazed how much difference it made when they did their listening an attention sort of work and had made different arrangements for them to set up snack time just at different time you know because actually the children just weren't having to filter out the background noise all the time so just being aware of people coming in and out of the classrooms you know what's your system for doing that because we ask an awful lot of children's attention and we forget that children's attention is still developing and actually we're really bad at estimating our own attentional quality most of the time as adults you know terminally distracted and yet children are still learning that skill so you know we can't if they are listening to something that's being said to them and then somebody wanders into the room and talks to the teacher for five minutes we just expect them to instantaneously switch back to <laughs> focusing on the teacher but that takes time so if we can plan for that person to maybe not walk into the middle of the lesson and maybe that message didn't need delivery right now you know really simple stuff like that can make quite a big difference to the quality of the children's listening and their talking. And then the other thing that particular problem, I think, in earlier settings and primary is the amount of visual distraction in our classrooms. Yeah. So we're often putting up displays for really good reasons, but actually, you know, who are they for? Because if if they are there to support the children's learning, brilliant, but we need to put them at a level the children can actually see then <laughs> and we need to be referring to them. And if they're not for the children's information, because sometimes there's visual information for us as adults to prompt us to do things, then that needs to not be at the children's level. And we need to think thoughtfully about where we put that stuff because, you know, again, it's another interference with their attention. So, you know, they're having to screen out a lot of information before they get to the learning part. Yeah, so I know um, we did a previous podcast with Aaron, who had dyslexia, and mm-hmm. he was talking about all the things around the whiteboard or things that can distract him. 
Yes. So it's actually, in theory, if you want them to focus on the whiteboard, then have as little else on that wall as possible. Yes. So um, I was book I was reading by Castle Lynch literally has the whiteboard, clock, calendar, and that's about it. In theory, by doing that, it allows people to focus on that and not get distracted. Absolutely. And, you know, the ways that we set out our environment visually give children cues about what we expect them to do there. Some children really struggle with, you know, our our classrooms do a lot of different things. They might be, you know, eating snack in there and having quite an active activity in there. And then we expect them to switch to a focused activity where they have to listen. And they're just supposed to work out what our uh, requirements are. So, you know, if we have, you know, this is focus time, this desk doesn't have anything on it for a reason because you have to focus on what's in front of you versus a time when oh we're doing something a bit more active now we have more equipment out you know just simple things like really simple things like putting you know a cushion on the floor for your child to sit on so the expectation that they sit on it and stay still is obvious to them you know just making clear from the way that you use your space that what the purpose of that space is to the children is really powerful and none of that needs necessarily new stuff sometimes just moving some equipment around in the classroom can make a big difference so currently we're recording this podcast remotely because of covid19 so uh, (laughs) majority of us working from home so if you think of when you're at home sitting on your sofa with your laptop on your lap Mm. how much concentration is actually going on yes if you've got the tv on how much are you actually just watching the tv are you listening out for the washing machine to go hang out the washing are you looking at the window because it's sunny outside even as an adult Mm-hmm. it's really easy to get distracted generally what you're doing there is a certain level of interesting because you've chosen that as your career mm-hmm. or you're doing something but when you're at school and you're being taught by something you really don't care about it's even harder to concentrate so with all yeah. these stuff that we struggle with as adults sitting on a sofa at home and working is for children who haven't learned all the skills we've tried to learn it's going to be even harder yeah that's a really good analogy so I know for myself working from home it's funny because I work from home for myself in my business but on my NHS days I'm used to going to an office and uh you know on my NHS days I thought oh yeah I work from home that's no problem I do that all the time but I really struggled with the sort of mental thing because I don't normally do my NHS work from home and I literally had to the first couple of days I had to kind of go and put my work clothes on to get into the right mental headspace. Yeah. Um, and I have to, you know, I have to set up my desk the right way to sort of send my brain cues that this is what we're about today. I'm not in playing with the dogs mode and going to empty the dishwasher mode. I'm in work mode and children are no different, you know. So, you know, we do those things instinctively as adults. It goes back to being explicit about stuff for children. You know, we do those things instinctively as adults and we might need to make them a bit clearer to children about what our expectations are for their, you know, are they listening mode? Are they talking mode right now? You know, we can thoughtful about that and it is as you said you had that thing of you went to work so that told your brain what to do so Mm. teachers being teachers there's just so much that happens that develops your your timekeeping your scheduling everything you do your mentality has been developed over years of doing something especially now suddenly all these teachers are working at home it's sort of like this is very different this feels different am i and some might feel they're not working it it just really mucks with your head Mm. but if you, when you, if we're normally at school, when you do have this routine in your head, you, you might develop that routine and got perfect at what you do and all your timings. It might have taken you five, ten years to develop that. Yes. Yeah, you might have been the person who was always at like slightly late and you've worked on it and got better or things like that, not quite prepared. Or thing of the thing, but these children is they are just still learning those skills. Absolutely, yeah. And I don't think we always give them enough credit. I think what's been a positive about this time of COVID-19 is that I think it might have given some people some insight into what life's like for children with additional needs. Because, you know, to be thrown into environments that are out of your control and to, you know, not know what are the expectations on you are from one day to the next. You know, I think we're all finding this pretty stressful to fall back on certain routines that, you know, keep ourselves together. This is what we're talking about children doing. So I, I hope what an outcome might be they're a little bit more compassionate to children who are still learning this stuff. And any child, even if you don't have SLCN, they're still learning. You know, we've got such high expectations on them. And it's, if, if you think of Zoom, most schools, you work together, you work collaboratively. Mm-hmm. You're now doing it through a laptop screen. And your head is seeing this as a laptop. Your head, you're not seeing it as the same thing. You've got to get your head around it. You might not be that great with tech. So you've got mm. to work out how to turn the webcam on, your internet, various 
all these things is basically they are all barriers that you are having to overcome. And as you said, it's exactly the same for those with speech like communication needs or anything else. Is actually saying you've just been taken out of your comfort zone. You can't do things the way you used to. So you actually have to do it a completely different way. And now you're sort of going, okay, so to make sure that person still gets my message or my understanding, I might have to do a few extra things rather than just conveying it through this meeting or the webcam or whatever. Yeah. I might have to do something else as well to make sure they get my full understanding. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that's the same is, yes, you can do things certain way for most people, but for some of them might just need a slightly different a tweak just to make sure Yes. They're getting the same information. And I think the more you can embed that in your school practice, you know, because actually I was thinking when you were talking about transitions and, you know, nobody really knows what's happening with transitions at the moment, do they? And transition points are between year groups are a complete nightmare every year. And that's partly because every single classroom does it slightly differently. And often that's about our personal preference. You know, there may or may not be good reasons for the different ways we do things in different classrooms. So if we're reflective about that and have certain key things that are the same about communication environments in each classroom then it will make that transition process so much easier and children won't spend the first term just working out what on earth's going on which is such a missed learning opportunity so you know it's about thinking at a whole school level about this stuff yeah and it is it is it's partly is when it comes to transition you, you can pass that information up about children so the teacher can be more aware but if that child's walking as you said seeing a different environment mm. It's going to take them time to know. Some of the times you go from um, one room to another and there's certain things you have no control over. Yeah, sure. But other things, it could be colours, be more consistent with colours in the room or yeah. putting signs up, making sure that same sign. And now in theory, you might not feel that that sign is warranted in a year four class because that's an early years thing. Mm. But if it helps five of your children, and you can see that help, might it be helping the other 25 children? Absolutely, yeah. It's it's feeling that, that the expect, as you said, the expectations of if I walk into this room, what will I find? And although it might be in a different place, if I see the same sign saying the same sort of thing, that might be more comforting. I know what that is. I know what my expectations are. Yes. Again, it's making sure what your expectations are. So do you do, as you said, one thing in one classroom because that's your preference and another teacher does it a different way? And so for that child is expecting one thing and suddenly it's changed for no real reason. Mm. That's hard for them to understand. Yes, absolutely. So my nephew, I always refer to my nephews. They do have various issues, but they're also really good at sort of highlighting so at various things. So he would, in his English lesson, when you go in, because they've all come from different places, there'd always be that sort of taking time and he would get there quite early and it was when you arrive, you get your book out and read. Mm-hmm. Until, until the teacher's ready and everything's ready, you just sit and read. And he goes, great, he loves that. It, I think it calmed him, loved it. But whenever there's a supply teacher, the supply teacher didn't know that. So she's sitting there and he's got his book out and starts reading. She's like, what are you doing? Yeah. And the communication wasn't there, so she had no idea why he was doing that. And everyone should have been doing it. Mm-hmm. And when she's ready, she just says, right, put your books away, we're going to start the lesson. But that transition never really happened. And that is a week in, week out thing. So it is, is that what practice you do, can that go throughout the school? Can you do that same thing, follow that trend throughout the time in school? Mm-hmm. So it's just a bit more predictable for those who need it. Absolutely, because we're asking a lot of their processing already. So if we can just take a bit of that processing out of the equation by just just increasing the sameness between different classrooms, different environments. And I'm not talking about te- turning teachers into, you know, robots who will do things exactly the same way. But, you know, if your approach to teaching and learning vocabulary, for example, is similar in every classroom and you can follow that thread through and it can grow with the children, it can start to look a little bit more sort of mature, but they still need to recognise that these are the same strategies we talked about last year, you know. Yes. And, and it's just, it, it does require a lot of thinking about. I won't, I won't lie, because as adults, it's funny, really, we're good at communicating, but we're really bad at reflecting on our communication and so because these things come easily to us we don't stop and think about the challenges inherent in the ways we talk and communicate and what we expect of the children and you know I think so often it's the job of the child to adapt to us but actually we're the grown-ups in the room and um, 
you know, we need to take a little bit of time out to empathize as much as anything with, you know, where the children are coming from. And just a change in attitude actually can be a significant part of a communication friendly environment because it's whether you see those adaptations you need to make for the, the children as an extra to what you should be doing or whether you see it as part of your you know your practice as a professional you know and I would I would hope that we can get to a stage where everybody would see you know they talk about every teacher as a teacher of SEND and that's so true because you know children with SEND are no they're not actually that different to any other child they just they might be at a different stage in their learning but they've still got the same basic learning processes that we need to adapt to so you know as the grown-ups in the room we need to be doing a little bit more of the thinking sometimes about how we're doing things. So when I talk to schools and we talk about our assessment products, and they, we have to wait a year child in year six working at year one. We talk about the sort of lower level of learning, the pace, the, the, the smaller steps, showing all the progress. But actually, if you're a year six teacher and you've got that child in year working at a year one level, mm. you are then looking at the lower level of lower rate development. But in reality, what you should probably do is go look at that year one classroom look at what is in this classroom supporting that child children working at year one to develop yes because if that child is in year six that's their ability level that's probably kind of the support they need yes but then you go from your year six to year one it's a very different environment mm-hmm. kind of ripped out all of that because the majority of your children don't need it and you look at the majority but actually that child in working at year one does need those visual supports and all the yes. stuff going on in year one that the other children working at that year one level have. Absolutely, yeah. And just for a little bit of thought, you know, yeah, that's a really good example. And actually, you will never know until you try it what the positive impacts of putting those things in place for all the children in your classroom are. Yes, the other children are coping with the change in the environment, that, you know, they're meeting your educational expectations. But actually, what if we just approached the whole thing with curiosity, really, and said, what if I put that in place? I wonder what would happen with the other children, you know, because there is... Everything you put in place for a child with SLCN is good for every other child, you know. Yes. You know, there's no downside. We see it as extra work, but actually it can have a lot of rippling effects. And also it helps that those children aren't marked out as being different. You know, this is just stuff we do in this school. This is how we do it here. And it encourages peer relationships. You know, it's not just about what we do with the children in the classroom. It's not just about what we can mark them off as being capable of doing it's about them developing skills with their peers and if we take away the stuff that's supporting them then they're not going to have successful peer relationships after they've left school there was a quote i think wendy lee told me and i can't quite remember it you might know it is something like there was some study for the various people with mental health issues and they found that 80 percent had undiagnosed slcn Mm, yes so if you can really support the slcn and give people those tools to be able to um, share, express their feelings and all that sort of stuff and that understanding, then that will have an impact on their mental health. Yes, yes, absolutely. And we cannot assume that even the children who are appear to be coping in environments don't have hidden problems there. You know, we, we know that there are issues with identifying these children because these are bright children who are adapting and coping and so think how much potential we could set free in them if we weren't making them adapt and cope quite so hard yes I was listening to a podcast this morning and the chap was talking about he was talking about poor emotional experiences he has as a child but this guy was you know working he's doctor doctoral researcher and he was saying that at school he got C's and D's because for him his emotional environment was such that you know he was trying his best but he just didn't have the leftover capacity and the same thing applies to children with communication needs you know if if they can show their potential if we put them in the right environment you know and when his environment emotional environment changed he became a doctoral researcher so you know if we can create different better language environments for these children we can see what they can actually do we're not just making them cope all the time yeah my nephew has another nephew uh, i only have a few it's not like i'm unlimited <laughs> it's not like my granddad's funeral story um <laughs> has dysgraphia so uh, for him, he concentrates so much on the process of writing and it hurts. His speed of writing and everything disappears. His creativity, what he's trying, it just concentrates so much. It took us five, six years of battling, but finally he got given a laptop to always use. Mm-hmm. Exams and everything. 
and he got the most progress in the entire school because it finally removed the biggest barrier for him so he could stop worrying about the writing and the pencil and because he's focused on that his spelling was lower because yeah. he'd spent so much right all of those barriers were removed mm-hmm. and he flew and he's now at college and doing really well and wants to be an airline pilot not the best timing for that um <laughs> But it was it was that was his barrier. And for some mm. people, it is really obvious what that barrier is, and you can remove yeah. it. For others, it's not so obvious. So it's 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 having those conversations and trying to try to work out where they are. And sometimes just having that conversation that was the barrier. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times people really underestimate the impact of these small changes. I don't think we're very good. at as humans are estimating that we like the big showy change you know we like the big training course and we like you know sending everybody on the same thing and you know reinventing the wheel but actually we're not very good at estimating the impact of just consistently providing a good environment and you may never know you know I can I can recommend a change to a child's environment and people will say oh that didn't work but actually you don't know to what extent that was helping and you don't really know the accumulated impact of doing all these little things until they're taken away um, and then you see the child struggling so you know I don't think we need to make children prove that they need support. (laughs) You know, let's just provide great environments for them and let them show us what they can do. So, yeah, people tend to, they almost want to make every change sort of be evidenced in and of itself. But we know that all these little changes add up for children's communication. And that's certainly the feedback I get when I'm training people and they go and change this stuff. They're amazed how much more the children talk to them, you know. So you mentioned doing training in the early years. You mentioned managers. So for me, if something like this is a whole school thing this is something head teachers and school leaders should all know about yes how often do you talk to a head teacher or school leader about these things well the great sadness is as a speech therapist i don't often talk to a head teacher and i think that it's interesting actually you make an interesting point so we're often talking to class teachers and tas yeah. Um, and, you know, where we can make the biggest impact is where we can affect a whole school culture. And you can see the difference in those schools where you go in. And there are schools where the head will come and talk to me. But often, you know, individuals supporting a child will have really taken on board what we're saying. But there's a limit to how successful we can be as speech therapists because the whole school stuff isn't there. So you, you make an excellent point, you know. And the funny thing is, in terms of impact uh, for your, you know, bang for your buck you know we're talking about quite small amounts of money to change these things and it's the harder thing is leading a changing culture isn't it and changing people's attitudes yeah um but if you get a school that's on board with that you know you really can make massive differences to children's lives you know i know that sounds a bit sentimental but but it's true (laughs) it is if you think of a speech and language communication need leading to mental health issues and i think um there is a very high rate of suicide in adults with autism mm. then if you link that back to communication needs that shows you it's not going to be in you're going to make a difference in six weeks yes but actually changing that environment for your pupils now yeah. and making them better communicators and better sharers will hopefully change the direction their life is going in yeah absolutely yeah and oftentimes the thing I think the reason it can be difficult to persuade people on these small changes is because they don't necessarily see the benefits in the time they're with the child yeah and I talk a lot as somebody who works with children from sort of you know naught through to 18 I'm often saying to people I know you don't see I know you don't see the point of what I'm asking you to do now <laughs> I do get that but when he's this tall <laughs> He's going to have a skill, you know, and when you take the long view of these things, you are often planting seeds that you're not going to see grow. But that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. So, you know, think of the next teacher, think of think of the next school, think of that child's life. You know, we know that people with poor communication skills have poor life outcomes. They're more likely to go to prison. They have poorer peer relationships, poorer mental health, as you say, you know, and poorer communication means poorer access to physical health care. You know, there's just no reason not to address these needs and they're so easily they're so very easily addressed in some ways it can sound really odd that sorry if someone has a communication need they'll end up in prison Mm. sounds almost a bit far-fetched but actually if you've got someone who struggles to communicate and as they grow up and as they hit puberty and as they get older 
and all those expectations put on them and they can't communicate and they can't share that anger, stress, unknown will build up. Yeah. And even just today, I was reading on my phone with COVID lockdown, uh, people had killed themselves. A 17-year-old boy had killed himself, yet his parents thought he was doing really well. Mm. All the pupils in the school thought he was one of the brightest in the year type thing. You literally mm. read it and everything is positive, but inside this child was scared of failing. Mm-hmm. I'm, he's 17, I'm still going to call him a child because he is a child. He he didn't have the communication skills. Is mm. what, what that comes down to is he was worried about something. He was worried about getting to a dead-end job. He had a diary and people had read this. And they're like, they could see that what he was doing, he wouldn't do that. But that was yes. his worry and he had, didn't know how to share it. He didn't know how to communicate. Uh, there's a whole load of that. And it resulted mm-hmm. with, with this COVID-19 affecting, I think he's going to be doing A-levels next year, this losing all this lesson time and education. He was like, I'm, 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 he had decided in his head that this was going to happen and he killed himself. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's one of those things when you read it all, it's five conversations that didn't happen mm-hmm. at some point led to this. Absolutely. If you, if you track it back, a primary school it's a conversation if he'd had a conversation or helped that conversation and had conversations throughout he might not have felt this way absolutely i'm only speculating on what i read on an article on my not my phone but you see it a lot from around you see it in a lot of happening is generally when this happens i didn't know is what everyone says mm, absolutely it felt like that but it comes down to that communication absolutely you know because how often if we give children a poor experience of being in school and they're not equipped with the skills they need for their life they they go and repeat patterns that they've known before and they don't have the language to do things differently and then we see it all the time you know and then their their children don't have a great experience to school and if we we have to start somewhere and the impact from such small attitudinal and environmental changes is so massive but we're quite bad at uh, making changes that may not pan out for a year two years a generation <laughs> we're, we're, we're big on the interventions. so there's often a lot of focus on getting speech therapists in to see children for their interventions and that's really important but actually you know as somebody intervening at a specialist level I cannot tell you how often I come in and I have to start with you're not doing this in the, in the environment guys I can't get on to my specialist stuff because you need your visuals and let's talk about where he sits and all that stuff you know so if you want to make the most of your specialist interventions, then, you know, create a great communication environment because then we won't spend a lot of time tweaking that before we start. I do think we are in that world where we want instant gratification. Oh, yeah. If you think of even starting at a political level, we're voting for the next three years. Everyone is doing everything, Labour, Conservative, they're all doing to get in in two years' time or three years' time. And they're promising stuff for four years. They're never generally agreeing that we need to do this together we need mm. to do, think about 20 years 30 years we always ever think of two three years whenever uh, greta and the environmental mm. we just dismiss it because it's not happening this year or next year so that someone else can deal with it mm. and it, actually it's a seed we need to plant now mm. we need to change a little change now we can do it and we don't like here as you said we don't like hearing if we make a small change now, it'll be a big difference later on. We like to see it. We like to see that if I do this, this happens immediately. Tick, I'll do that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So true. And one of the more boring lessons of growing up for me has been that consistency is really important. Yes. I, I don't want to learn that lesson. That's really dull. <laughs> I think with my children, you think I'll stop them making the same mistakes I did. And you try as much as you can. But almost like you have to feel the pain sometimes. I want I wanted to stop my children making mistakes. I, I knew the mistakes I made that no one helped me on. So I thought I'm gonna help my children. But they have to go through the pain. Mm. It's like if you get everything right the first time, you haven't really learned anything. So you never know why you made that decision. You have to get it wrong almost to see. So you were inconsistent and yeah. then you saw the benefit of being consistent. So you almost have to go through the pain. Yes. And so although I'm trying to help my children, they 
aren't making some of those mistakes, they're making new ones. Yes, true. But also because they haven't had the pain I've had, they're not listening. That's interesting you say that though, because I think sometimes bring people bring that thought process to communication environments too. So, you know, why should we create environments that are the right environments for these children to communicate in? Because they're going to have to go out into the world and communicate, you know. But schools are to an extent different. You know, we know what's good for children's learning. <laughs> if we, If they can't, practice those things in a safe environment there where on earth are they going to do it i think uh, to me that's a it's a 50 50 so one hand they've got to learn the skills to use so you've got to actually teach them the skills in the first place Mm. but then the other bit is that actually yeah it isn't always going to be perfect but the more more you teach the skills in the first place the more ingrained they are the more confidence they have around those skills, the more they'll be able to use them in difficult situations. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that children are going to encounter difficult situations, difficult communication environments. But, you know, we can't just use that as a reason to not provide the right communication environment for them in school. Um, that's not you know, that's not good enough, really, <laughs> because they're not going to develop those skills just by, oh, well, we're not providing a great environment. They'll learn to cope with a not great environment you know I, I, it's not a sound basis for moving forward we know that we need to control the things we can control in their environment whilst they're learning so that they can be more flexible in how they le- use their skills later on in life and it is is whatever you teach them they will try and apply what they've learned elsewhere whether they've learned it or not mm. so it might be a case of you're a very organized person you go off to university you will try and be organized at least for a little bit but you will take what you've learned and you'll try and apply it. So it's about teaching good habits. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we're just instilling good communication habits. And, you know, any one of us might come across a situation that is too big for our coping strategies. But if we haven't taught any coping strategies in the first place, then we're setting children up to fail. Yes. So I'm sure that anyone, apart from those who work in big music concerts, turns the radio down they're trying to find a parking space or they get a bit lost (laughs) absolutely yeah but for those who work in concerts who are used to loud noise can probably think perfectly well with the music up quite loud but for the rest of us we just make that environment that slightly more comfortable and easier absolutely so nobody sits there going well you're going to have to work in a noisy environment someday i'm going to force you to find that place where the radio turned up do they no. We just get the adaptations that we need. And that's all we're asking for children. As I think when you're driving down the road, you can have that music up loud, you can do all that, look, you're comfortable. As soon as you sit there going, I'm not comfortable, you turn the volume down. Absolutely. And when children in school, they don't have any control over the volume or whatever the equivalent background distraction is, we do. So, yeah. you know, we have to make those decisions to think about that stuff for them. Yeah. So I did fire off start saying senior leaders and leaders mm-hmm. uh, and and it is, it is to me, anything like this is a whole school change. They need to be leading it. But again, it's one of those things where special needs and anything like this isn't generally on leaders' radars. And I'm not saying that individual schools. I'm saying as a national level, it's not there. There's a load of issues. It's one of my, one of my biggest issues that I've realized over the last year that there are lots of people lower down the school who are really fighting for all of this. But the leaders are still just prioritizing results and pleasing Mr. Ofsted. And until that whole ethos changes to be more inclusive, it won't really happen. Mm. But where can schools go to get support? So obviously they can go to their NHS, local NHS for support. They can go to their local special school. Yes. Where else? So I would say um, local NHS departments, I think uh, a bit like schools are often focused on, you know, we're there for the specialist level stuff. So access to training on creating good communication environments may or may not be part of your local NHS service, depending on how they're commissioned. But there is quite a lot of information out there. So one of your big tools as a school that is absolutely fantastic is the Communication Trust. They have tons of information. Various audit tools for looking at your environment are available through them. And there's also quite a lot of free training for looking at the levels of understanding and skills in your staff Uh, on the Communication Trust website. I can really recommend that. And then the other training that I certainly I've been involved with and I've found really helpful is um, Elkland, who are an accredited provider of speech and language training. They have a communication friendly settings program. 
at all levels from early years through uh, including special schools and basically that's quite a structured program that trains all the staff and then rolls out these changes and evidences them so that can be a really positive experience you know if you're looking to have a structure to take forwards the idea of a communication friendly environment in your school that's really helpful because uh, it can be really hard to drive change so that can give you a sort of format for doing that so yeah I'd recommend looking into Elkin because I've had very positive feedback about people going through that communication friendly settings program but um, you needn't sign up to do it in an accredited way like I say the communication trust has got more information than you could possibly use as a school to be honest with you so go and see what's out there and then the rest is culture you know you have to be having the right conversations with the right people so um, I did have a look at the Elkland website for this and I also looked at the Communications Trust and in the show notes I'll be putting a link to on the Communication Trust they have a communication friendly environments checklist mm-hmm. and I thought great it's going to be a list of things I have to do it doesn't actually do that it more like gives you questions yes because it is very hard to give a general a very specific here's a list of 10 things to do in your school yeah. It's more like here's a, here's a list of 10 areas you need to think about. Yes. I mean, I think the, the thing is you can't always be prescriptive. Every school's different. Every environment's different. Every cohort of children is different. So that's where your reflective practice comes in. So it's not like a, here's, here, here's some list of clothes to pack on holiday and it lists exactly everything. It would more like be, well, where are you going on holiday? What yes. would you be doing on holiday? <laughs> yeah. Are you going in the sea? It's more like those questions which then should tell you okay, these are the sort of things we can do in my school. Absolutely. They're reflective prompts, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to have the conversations at school because actually it's important they're not checklist because otherwise your sinker will go in embed. You know, they'll change all the signage in your school and that would look lovely, but you wouldn't have changed the culture. You know, the thinking and the conversation is is the change. <laughs> yes, it's making that, bringing that much bigger priority in the school, raising it in lots of different ways. Yes. And also, I think if you had it as a checklist in some schools, that would be great. In other schools, you couldn't actually implement them or yes. it could do more damage. Yes. I can't think of an example. But <laughs> you, know, you see a checklist, it says do this. And you're looking at your environment going, that makes no sense. And it might yeah. not make any sense for what you've already got in your school. Absolutely. And I think t- to me, um, you know, what's important it's not about having the perfect visual support up on that wall because you know that's what the evidence says it's about understanding what's important about the visual support so you can say you know oh we chose not to use that because you know there's a thought process it's not oh we got a bit bored of that visual support so we took it down because nobody seemed to be using it you know if you're not using something that's okay you have a reason to not use it what are you doing instead how are you doing that in your school you know yeah it's so much more than a checklist and I think sometimes when you have a checklist people will use it as an excuse to not do things oh well we can't do that so you know yeah, you can't do you can't do one of the 10 so we won't do any of them that's it yeah or they might say have a visual wall you do that but if you turn around every other wall is doing is actually having a negative impact yes absolutely so you know yeah if you've got so much visual support that it's a massive distraction then you've rather undermined the purpose so it's about being reflective you know and slc support is not just for your senko <laughs> no it's for everyone no, I've done. I've, um, I've I've generally focused in all my work on the kind of academic, looking at autism and looking at other stuff. And over the last few months, recording podcasts with yourself and Wendy Lee, and also talking about various other things with Sarah Jane, is realizing how important communication is, and all the stuff, selective mutism, anxiety, and how all that has an impact, and then how that communication has such an impact. Yes, it is huge. And every school has communication issues, not just with the pupils, with the staff. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, it's um, when you say something, what does something mean? Do you all have that shared understanding? Mm-hmm. And that, that goes on many different levels. So when you say, if, if you don't all have that same understanding, you all do something slightly differently. Mm-hmm. So it's, if you're having conversations and your staff are unclear, well, what they're passing on is also going to be unclear. Yeah. So it is, it's not just thinking that communication with your pupils, it is actually, is my communication clear with everyone? Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, the biggest investment on this stuff is your time. Yeah. And, you know, I think that is hard to come by, isn't it? We're all short of time. Yes. And it's having the faith, really, that investing the time will pay off because it will. I see it all the time. <laughs> the schools that invest time in this stuff have better outcomes for their children. You know, you see it in your clinical work. 
uh, probably I'm guessing when you say invest time, it's one of the things is investing a lot of time now. But yes. as it becomes good practice, the time will kind of disappear because you're. Yeah. So it's not like it's going to take us an extra 10 hours a week every year. It's actually you're going to put a big focus on it now. You're going to get that embedded in your school ethos yes. uh, or in your vision, all that sort of stuff. And then that will kind of disappear as you that will continue. Yes. You might have to really look at it every year to make sure you're not wandering off in the wrong direction. Yeah. But it is what benefits you said goes back to what benefits children with SLC and benefits everyone. Absolutely. And yeah, I don't I don't think I can say anything better than that really, you know. <laughs> your your children all your children have communication needs, you know, on some level we all have a communication need and when we meet it we'll be more successful in our education. And in reality, for those who are really caring about uh, their numbers and their grades and their local authority and their league table rating, is in reality, if you can support children with SLCN, it is going to improve their outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Whether or not they can concentrate more or they are ready to learn more throughout their time in school mm -hmm. or the anxiety, you can actually talk and have a conversation around their anxiety around the SATs. Mm. actually they'd be more confident going into them so it's, it's 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 not just one but it's lots of benefits but it all comes back to having this communication absolutely yeah communication is embedded in everything we do there's just no separating it out from you know no. everything else in our life excellent thank you for coming to the show today Anna Harriet. my pleasure that was a good chat it was good so as i said there'll be links to elk clan and the communication trust checklist in the show notes i'll also be putting in information on how you can contact ang harrod and find the key speech and language therapy also be looking putting a link to the b squad website with our communication interaction framework which is not generic it's more um, supporting children with specific areas and you can book a meeting with me through there as well to find out more and that will all be on our show notes on www.thesendcast.com. So big thank you for listening to the show. Uh, please let us know what you think. I often ask you to subscribe, but I'm going to ask you once again to leave a review on iTunes or let us know what you think by using the hashtag Sendcast on Twitter. Uh, or you can send me an email at dale at thesendcast.com. If you want to contact us on social media or retweet us or mention us in any way, uh, we are on all the usual social media channels. On Twitter, we are at The Sendcast. On Facebook, The Sendcast. On Instagram, The Sendcast. And on LinkedIn, we just search for Sendcast and you'll find us. Um, and if you want to get in touch with, in touch with me on anything, let me know your thoughts, suggest topics or anything else, please send an email to hello at thesendcast.com. If you've enjoyed The Sendcast, why not look into the Virtual Send Conference? I always mention this at every podcast because I think it's great. And it's a great way of getting CPD around SEND. It's run by us here at B Squared. It covers a wide range of areas. And what makes it different is it runs across the internet. So you don't have to travel to London or Birmingham. You can access this anywhere. And I know we have people accessing it in Africa, Middle East, New Zealand, Far East, and lots of other places. It's just got lots of good advice from lots of people like Ang Harrod who are sharing their experience for you. And the idea is every session has something you can take away and think about or apply in your school. We run the conferences twice a year. You don't have to watch on the day, but you're always welcome to join us. But you can also use the videos throughout the year. So you can use it part of inset training or for future staff. So you might do a whole big training session now. But actually, another member of staff joining you in September, they can access the same training because the training cost is for the whole school. So the tickets cost £60 each per school and not per person. And as a listener to the Sendcast, we are offering you a 10% discount just by using the code SENDCAST10. We are currently developing an event for parents called Parent Talks, which we'll be releasing in June. So you can register on our website to keep up to date with the schools conference or for the parent talks just by going to the website, which is www.virtualsendconference.com. So thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. So it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye. Bye.